If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you'll remember that um, we looked at what it is to be a Bible-loving church, and then last week, um, John talked about being a Jesus-centered church. And so I wanted to do something a little bit different this week and kind of mash those two topics together a little bit. And so, as I say, it's going to be a slightly different format to usual. The aim of today is to cover some of the basics of how to read and interpret the Bible. Um, So hopefully it'll be quite equipping. Um, And the lens that we're going to look at the Bible through is this idea that the Bible is all about Jesus. It tells us the story of Jesus. The Old Testament points towards Jesus, and the New Testament um, tells us about how Jesus came. And um, we're going to go through the Bible from the front to the back, from Genesis to Revelation, in one sitting, which is pretty hardcore, isn't it? Hopefully, who's up for that? Yeah? It is quite intense though, so you know, you're gonna have to be engaged. So if anybody falls asleep next to you, you've got my permission to like, just give them a a nudge in the ribs or whatever, because we need, this team, we're on the same team, we've gotta get through this together. So has anybody here ever tried to read the Bible from front to back? Who's had a a go at that? Yep, lots of you have done it. Um, If you've you've not done it, it's a really funny way to read the Bible because it, it starts out in Genesis and Exodus, it's quite engaging, there's lots of great stories. And then you get to this book called Leviticus um, and, and, and it gets a bit weird. Um, all of a sudden there's all these rules that you're reading about stuff, about stuff like how to clean mold out of tents and you're like, is, how is this relevant? And, then, and you might read um, a verse like this about what seems to be about skincare. When somebody has a boil on his skin and it heals, and in the place where that boil was, a white swelling or a reddish white spot appears, he must present himself to the, to the priest. And as you read on a couple of verses later, it says, if, 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 if the priest effectively decides that that boil looks a bit sinister, they would declare that person unclean, and then they would have to tear their clothes, mess up their hair, and walk around yelling, unclean, unclean, to warn people. Now, I don't know, I'm assuming nobody in this church has ever, you know, when they've had a spot, gone to see John and Debbie to get it checked out. <laughs> I mean, if you did, I'm sure Debbie would be totally cool about it. She'd be like, it's fine, here's a bit, borrow my concealer, you'll be all right. But the truth is, if you read the Bible with any sort of regularity for any length of time, you'll end up reading passages like this that leave us wondering, you know, so how exactly is this relevant to me today? Some of the Bible, some of the sort of instructions that we read in here can seem a bit dry sometimes. There are sections that are confusing or hard to follow. And what do we do with those sections? Do we just ignore the bits that we don't like the sound of? I mean, that might be the most convenient thing to do, but there must be some kind of reason why God put them in there, mustn't there? Nevertheless, sometimes reading the Bible, it reminds me of um, sometimes of this situation that I found myself in. About a year ago, a mate and I, we went walking in the Peak District. We went up, um, who's been up Jacob's Ladder? We went up there, and then we got onto this sort of like mog, sort of like marshy, boggy bit at the top, and all of a sudden, the weather changed. And so one minute, we were just having this lovely day out, and then this fog came down, and we were in this completely indistinguishable terrain of mogs and barshes, um, up to our knees in water, marshes, not barshes, and... <laughs> We're basically like Frodo and Sam from Lord of the Rings, just staggering around. And I think we probably would have died up there um, if we hadn't taken two things with us, um, a compass and a map. And what we did was we got the map out and we we looked at the, the big picture. And we didn't know exactly where we were, but we knew roughly where we were. And then we figured out roughly where we, where we wanted to get to. 
and then we used the compass to figure out roughly what direction we needed to go in. And we just followed the compass through these bogs, and in about half an hour or so, um, we were out on the other side on, onto this sort of like valley trail. Sometimes I think the Bible is a bit like that. What, what, what do I mean by that? What does that analogy mean? Well, I think I'm not like a super Bible scholar, um, but as far as I can tell, reading and interpreting um, the Bible can be broken down into basically three steps, which will come up on the screen um, right now. The first step when you try to read the Bible is you just read it. The sec- um, and at that stage, it's just you um, and God and your Bible, and you just ask God to reveal the meaning of it to you. Then the next step is you ask the question, so what did this mean there and then? To the people who would have originally read it, what would it have meant? And, and this is all about getting the map out and having a look at the context, the bigger picture, getting your bearings, asking questions like, who wrote this? And who did they write it to? And when did they write it? And what was going on at the time? And where did they write it? And what sort of language are they using? All those kind of questions to get your bearings. Now, most of us, um, we don't have all that knowledge at our fingertips or in our brain. We have to use sort of additional resources to gather some of that information. And so we look at things like maybe the study notes in our Bible or a commentary or, um, or if a really good book that I'd recommend is a book called The Bible Book by, by Nick Page. It can just really help us to give us a little bit of context. And then the third thing we do, and this is a bit like getting the compass out, is that we, we then, with all of that information, we figure out, so, so what could it be mean, meaning to us today? And that allows us to take um, the next step and choose the direction that we're going in. Now, just as a little bit of a spoiler alert here, we'll come back to this later, but you'll find that the compass, the direction that the story is going in, is always pointing towards Jesus. Um, he defines the direction of the Bible story. But it's as we follow that compass within the context of the whole map that it really enriches our Bible reading experience. And you might say to me at this point, like, surely that is a bit of a faff. Do I have to go through all those steps? Do I have to jump through those hoops just to read the Bible? Can't I just like read it and have God speak to me? Um, and I don't want to overcomplicate things. And the answer to that question, I think, is often, yeah, that's, that's exactly how it works. You just read it and, and the meaning is so plain and God speaks to you and that's great. But the thing that I'm kind of trying to say this evening is that there are large chunks of the Bible where without that context, they're never going to make very much sense to us because they're just so entrenched in the culture of the time. So we're going to get the map out. And we're going to look at the entire Bible story, following that compass, tracing the path of Jesus. Um, and um, it's going to take, hope, well, hopefully we'll be, we'll be done before midnight, if that's cool with everybody. So it all, we've got some illustrations to help us as we go. It should come up on the screen. So it all started, not exactly sure how long ago, the Bible doesn't tell us, but a long time ago. God created the universe, the heavens, at the command of his voice. And we read in the book of Genesis at the pinnacle of that creation, he made humans, Adam and Eve, in his image. And, um, and as he created them, um, it was, he put them in this, in this garden called Eve, Eden where everything was perfect and everything was just the way he wanted it to be. And in perhaps his greatest act of creative might, more amazing than making the stars and the planets, he gave humans a conscious and an ability to, to make decisions for themselves. Um, and that free will, will it, it opened up the possibility for them to choose to love him and to choose to follow him, something that would perhaps glorify him more than all the rest of it put together. But the flip side to that, 
Um, and a, a consequence of that was they also created the possibility of them choosing not to follow him and to rebel against him. And if you read the Genesis story, after a couple of um, chapters, the devil comes into the story and he tempts Adam and Eve to do the one thing that God had asked them not to do. They eat the forbidden fruit. And in that moment, sin and rebellion entered the human heart for the first time and it changed the story forever. These two people were no longer um, perfect. They were broken, they were flawed, and they no longer belonged in this perfection that God had made for them, and he had to cast them out of Eden. And if you read the Genesis story, um, you can hear the sadness in God's voice in this moment. He's heartbroken about this. But even in this moment of complete failure, there is this little glimmer of hope. There's this intimate little detail that we read about where it says that as God was sending them out of Eden, he, 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 made, he used animal skins to make clothes for them. And it showed that he, he wanted to, to, to give them dignity, even in this moment of failure. He wanted to do something to cover their shame. And it also indicated that he wasn't just sending them out of, of Eden and sending them out there to die and, and sort of forget about them. He was sending out the, them out there with protection and it indicated that he had a plan for their life in the future. And as you read on through Genesis, the next few chapters, that plan starts to unfold. Um, Read about stories like Noah and the Ark and the Tower of Babel. Um, And it's really important with those stories, it's just as a bit of an aside really, to, to read them in light of what they actually are. Those stories, like Noah and the Ark, are, are a genre of writing that's typical of, of ancient origin stories of the time. And uh, they, they were probably originally passed down and remembered um, and passed down by, through word of mouth um, until they were sort of written down and captured in the scriptures around about the time of Moses, we think. Um, but they're not scientific textbooks, um, and we can't read them as such. So th- the point of those stories is not how literal they are. The point of those stories is what they tell us about the nature of God and the nature of humans and why things are the way they are. And there are truths in those stories that, are, that mean just as much to us today as they did to those cultures thousands of years ago, which is amazing the way God inspired those words. Anyway, as we read through those, about 11 chapters into Genesis, there's this character that gets introduced called, here it comes, Abraham. And um, Abraham, at the start of this story, he was an old man um, and uh, he got a bit of a problem because his name meant um, like a, a father, a, a great father, but he didn't have any children. And his wife was old too, and she was barren, and it was a problem because nobody was there to inherit his fortune. And then God reached out to him, and he made him this incredible promise. He said, you are going to be the father of, of, of an entire nation. If you look up at the stars, how many people are up there, your descendants are going to be no, more numerous than the stars. And I'm going to give you a land to live in, and you will be my people, and I will be your, your God. And if you live in my ways, I'll bless this nation, and they will be the light of the world. And um, against the odds, as crazy as it sounded, God started to fulfill that promise. This old couple had, this, had a son called Isaac, and um, it's amazing to, to hear that that happened. But then a couple of chapters later, there's a bit of a twist in the story. When God asks Abraham to do the unthinkable, he asks him to sacrifice Isaac, to, to take him up onto the top of a hill and kill him. And this is one of those stories where, you know, nowadays in our culture, we read that and we're like, 
that is unbelievable. Like, how could, that's a, that's a horrible story. Why would a loving God even, you know, talk about something like that? But this is where, you know, if we do a little bit of that, remember that step two of looking at the context, the wider picture, the thing that would have been distinctive about that story to the people at the time was not the theme of child sacrifice because lots of cultures around them practiced child sacrifice at the time. The thing that was distinctive about that story was the fact that even though Abraham was obedient enough to do it and faithful enough to do it, God didn't require it of him. He valued that life and he instead provided a sacrifice for them to make. The story is actually a foreshadow of a sacrifice that was going to happen 2,000 years later when our heavenly father would sacrifice his son for the whole world. So Isaac got through that one, just. And um, he had a son in turn called, called Jacob, who, who Jacob had a number of sons, um, including Joseph of Technicolor Dreamcoat um, fame that we've all heard about. And again, he is um, another foreshadow of Jesus in a way, If you know the story of of Joseph, he was a favored son who was punished and persecuted even though he had lived um, a a life of innocence and and, and he was sent into exile in Egypt. But at the end of the story of Joseph, um, the tables are turned and um, his family, this tribe, the Israelites, uh, come knocking on his door asking for help. And he could have extended judgment to them, he could have uh, executed justice on them, but instead he forgave them, and the story is a story of redemption and grace. The favored son invited God's people to come and be with him. And that story, um, Joseph, takes us up to the end of the book of Genesis. Now, I know you might be thinking, wow, we really haven't covered very much of the Bible, have we, so far? But we have, if you think about it another way, we have covered a lot of time, like from the year dot to about 2,000 years ago, so we're doing all right. So that story, the next next book that goes along in the the Bible is a book called Exodus. And um, the, the main character in Exodus is a guy called Moses. Now, at this point, um, this nation, the Israelites, they're still living in Egypt, um, but they had come to become a persecuted people. They were living in slavery in Egypt and they needed liberating, they needed freeing. And so God raised up this leader called Moses to do just that. He negotiated with Pharaoh and he, there was all the stuff of the plagues and then he led them across the Red Sea um, towards the promised land, the land that had been, pro- been promised to this people right back in the time of Abraham. But on the way there, they had to cross through um, the desert and during the desert, they got a bit like me and my mate, they got completely lost for 40 years. That is a big diversion, isn't it, really? But it's during this time um, where God makes one of those promises again to this people, a special kind of God promise called a covenant, which is like a sort of a two-way promise where God says, I will be your God and you'll be my people. If you live in my ways, I will bless you. And to sort of clarify exactly what that sort of like the terms of that contract were, he gave them um, a law to live by. Um, but it wasn't a paper, paper law, it was on, on, on stone tablets. You know, you've heard of the Ten Commandments. They were at the heart of this law that God gave the people to show them how to live. And they were the sort of the essential right and wrongs, like don't kill people, stuff like that. But there was also a whole bunch, like any good legal contract, of, of fine print that came with it. Um, laws about all different types of practical things and, and sacrifices and things like that. And we read about those um, in, in, in this book called Leviticus. Now, so we've, we've arrived at, at that bizarre Bible verse that I mentioned at the start about the spots. 
But this time, we haven't just read it in isolation, have we? We've looked at the, at the map. We've looked at the, the broader context. And if you think about it for a second, what did, this, what did these laws mean? This was a, a fledgling nation of maybe a few hundred thousand people um, living as, as travelers, as nomads in the desert. They weren't sophisticated. They had no infrastructure. They were living in tents. And they just had this one guy, poor guy called Moses, trying to lead them. So God did something to keep them alive. He inspired Moses and he gave the people this set of laws, rules to live by, um, to give them instruction on how to handle mold in tents, which is important if you're living in tents, and how to handle outbreaks of infectious skin diseases. Basic stuff that in hindsight we can look back now and see they actually kept the people alive. It was the difference between life and death for them. And so this law shows that God cared passionately about his children. And similarly, um, there's lots of laws in Leviticus about sacrifices, which you might have read. And they, again, they can seem a bit strange, but they, they were a bit like, um, you remember in Genesis when I mentioned those clothes that God made for Adam and Eve, animal skins that were used to cover over their shame. That's what those Old Testament sacrifices were all about. They showed that God cared enough about his people to want to give them a way of, of dealing with the indignity of their sin and reconciling themselves back to God. Now, this was a sort of a flawed system. They had to kill all these animals. It, 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 it sort of pointed towards the need for something more. It pointed towards a sacrifice that would, that would sort out this problem of sin once and for all. Once again, um, the compass was pointing forwards to Jesus. But after wrestling with this law and going around in the desert in circles, eventually the people decided that they wanted to commit themselves to the law. And so right towards the end of Moses' um, time as a leader, the law was read aloud in front of the people, and they said, yeah, we're up for it. We, we promise we'll live your way, God. And God knew that they wouldn't. He knew that eventually they would rebel against him. But for the time being, he was faithful, and he honored his end of the bargain. He led them um, across the Jordan, out of the desert, under the leadership of a new leader called Joshua, and they finally entered this, this promised land that had been promised to them all the time, you know, a thousand years ago in the time of, of, of Abraham, or 500 years ago. And for the next few hundred years, um, the nation didn't have a king or anything, that it was led by this series of judges, people who God raised up at particular times for particular purposes. So in the book of Judges, it's got the same name, um, you hear about the story of, of people like Gideon, Deborah, anybody heard of Samson? They were all judges in the Bible. And it's during this time as well that we read the story of Ruth, um, who was one of Jesus' ancestors, and she, um, she found herself in a very difficult situation, and miraculously, God brought her through that situation. And it was a, it's kind of a, a, an example of how God, all that time, was being faithful to the promises that he'd made the people. But meanwhile, the people were not being faithful to the promises that they had made to God. They, they were practicing idolatry. They, were, they, were, they just forgot about the law. And the book of Judges concludes with this rather damning statement. It says, in those days Israel had no king and everybody did as he saw fit. And so the people, they looked around all this chaos and they, and they looked at some of the nations that were surrounding them and they were like, you know what our problem is? We need a king. We need a king like the Philistines. They've got an awesome, we should, we should have a king. So they, 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 they asked for a king. And God, he speaks back 
to the people through the last of the judges, this, this prophet called Samuel. And Samuel says, you don't need a king. God is your king. If you have a human king, um, they're corruptible. And um, eventually they will, they will take advantage of you and they will overtax you. You only need God as your king. And they're like, no, no, no. We want a proper king like the Philistines with a crown and a throne. And I think it got to the, I think it got to the point a bit like, you know, if you're, if you're a parent, you know that point where your kids just keep on asking for something that you know is not very good for them, but they just keep on asking and eventually you're like, sack it, okay, you can have that blue slush puppy and if you're sick, don't come crying to me about it, you just, you just give in and give it to them. And so I think that's what God did, he, he showed them this lesson by giving them what they wanted and the first king that they had was this guy called Saul and Saul, on the outside, he, he looked like a king, he was tall, um, he was impressive looking, but on the inside, um, he was a frail person, he was insecure, he was jealous of other people who were successful, and he didn't have the integrity that was required for the job. And over time, he started to make some really bad decisions, so bad that eventually God had to remove him from the throne, and instead, um, a new king had to be raised up and anointed. And this king, um, you might, I'm sure many of you have heard of, is, is King David, depicted here um, with his face off against Goliath. And David um, was perhaps the best king that the nation ever had. He was a person who didn't look so impressive on the outside, but the Bible said that his heart, uh, he was a man after God's own heart, and his heart belonged to the Lord. Through his life, he tried to live God's ways. He tried to lead the people in accordance to the law. And his best attributes, again, was very much the compass was pointing to Jesus. He was a foreshadow of Jesus. The best bits of him reminded us of Jesus. And I love um, my little girl, she's got this kid's um, storybook Bible. And in that, every story, they're always sort of like trying to point forward to Jesus. So when you're reading the story about King David, um, it sort of ends by saying, oh, but one day God was going to send a mightier king who would rule over God's people forever. And Hope inter- interrupt- interrupts me and she's like, it's Jesus, Dad. It's always Jesus. Every story, it's always Jesus. And I'm like, nice one, vineyard kids. Thank you. So anyway, towards the end of David's life, um, he, he, tries, he hands on the baton of leadership to his son Solomon, and he tries to do it as well as he can. He sits him down and he says, you are going to uh, lead the people, so you need to follow the law, you need to walk in God's ways, and, um, and if you manage to do that, and if you convince your descendants to do that, then we will always be blessed, we will always have this land, and we will always have a king on the throne. And so Solomon, his son, um, set out to do that. Um, he, he prayed for, for wisdom, and God made him very wise. And as a, as a consequence of that, he, he became very wealthy and very powerful, as depicted in the, in the, in the picture here. Um, and it's during this era of um, David and, and Solomon, you can, you can read about them in the books of um, 1 and 2 Samuel, but also... It's during this era that we, that we get some of the great poetic books in the Bible. So if you open your Bible in the middle, Psalms, many of those are attributed to David, this book of amazing worship songs. Or if you skip on a little bit, um, the book of Proverbs, these little nuggets of godly wisdom, they were most likely written around the time of Solomon, and perhaps a lot of them did come from Solomon. He's also the most likely author for the book of um, Ecclesiastes, which is a little bit further along. And um, Ecclesiastes is an amazing book because... Solomon, he had everything from the worldly point of view. He had all this wealth, um, but he still had this yearning inside of him um, for something more that really could only be fulfilled um, through knowing God. 
And so he kind of expressed that in this timeless philosophical um, existential monologue in the book of um, uh, Ecclesiastes. And it sort of like conveys all the unanswerable questions of the human heart in a way that's so relevant to us today. It's incredible. But he, as wise as he was and as amazing writer as he was, he also had some issues. Um, Solomon, he, was, he had a bit of a weak spot for sort of materialism and wealth. And he was also had a bit of a weakness for the ladies. Um, and those two vices very much sort of like led him astray towards the end of his time. And eventually he started to do silly things like practicing idolatry. Um, and he, he failed to do what his father had done ultimately and hand on the baton of leadership well. Um, the next king after him was a poor king. And almost instantly, um, there was infighting within the gentry. There was a civil war. The kingdom split into the north and the south. And uh, this was a really sad point in the story. You know, right back in the time of Abraham, God had chosen these people to be exemplary and to be a light to the world. But through infighting, they were sabotaging his plan. And so during this time, he, 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 he tried to speak to them through the, through the prophets, people like Elijah and Elisha. You can read about them in 1 and 2 Kings. And they were sort of saying, look, you need to, to reconcile yourself back to God. You need to turn back to him. But the people didn't listen. And over the next um, 200 years or so, there was basically this succession of lots of rubbish kings. Uh, there was one or two good ones like Hezekiah and Josiah, but most of them, they didn't, uh, they ignored the law, um, they practiced idolatry, and they just did whatever they wanted. And so God kept sending prophets to warn them. He kept on saying, you, you, you know, you need to turn back to me. Um, people like Hosea, um, and Hosea's mes message to the people was pretty bold. Hosea said, God feels like um, a husband who has an adulterous wife who just keeps on cheating in, on him and shows no remorse about it and sort of rubs his nose in it. That is how you're treating God at the moment, through, pra through practicing idolatry and worshiping other gods. It was a really strong, blunt message. But as the warnings came, um, the people didn't listen. God said, if you don't remember the promises you've made, there will have to be consequences. And eventually there were. Um, the, nations, uh, the nation was, was, was conquered. The Assyrians came in and they took out the northern kingdom. And then a little while later, the, the Babylonians came and they, and they conquered um, the southern kingdom. And if we sort of like pan out um, over the sort of the Old Testament story, this is probably one of the lowest points. Jerusalem, the capital city, was sacked by the Babylonians and, and, and the dwelling place of, of, of God, the temple, was, was leveled to the ground. And the people, this was destroyed basically. They had no king to lead them. All of the, the gentry and the exiles were taken off. Sorry, all of the gentry and the elite were taken off into exile in Babylon. And the people were effective, those people were effectively enslaved. The people were scattered. And once again, a bit like the story of Eden, God's people were cast out with, with no land, no king, no peace. And God's heart at this time was completely broken. Um, it's reflected in, for example, um, in, in, in the book of Jeremiah, this mournful prophecy uh, where God just spoke to the nation sort of just before and during and immediately after the collapse. Um, and, and in Jeremiah, um, there's this really famous Bible verse that many of um, you, I'm sure, will be familiar with in chapter 29, verse 11, where God said, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And I think this is a really good example of a Bible verse where 
if we read it in isolation, and when we read a verse like that, we're like, oh, that, that, that verse really speaks to me. God's got plans for me, plans for a future, plans to give me a hope. But when we get the map out, like what we've just done, and look at the context a little bit, at the start of that chapter 29, it explains how Jeremiah made, he, he, he gave that promise from God, not to you and me, but originally to these people who had been conquered and sent into exile. So originally, this, this promise wasn't even made to us. So if you've got a fridge magnet with that promise on it, it might not, if you've got a tattoo with that promise on it, you might need to go and get it lasered off, potentially, although we will come back to it in a minute. So I'll just leave that hanging in the air, slightly tense. So, against this backdrop of failure and destruction, there were, though, these glimmers of hope, like that promise in Jeremiah. And as we read on, we read about um, stories like the story of Daniel, who was um, this guy who'd been sent into exile in Babylon, and the culture around him was going totally the other way, but he decided to be faithful to God. And the story of Esther has similar tones to it. We read how God started to prepare the hearts of some people to prepare for restoration. So, for example, Nehemiah, um, he was one of the exiled sort of gentry, um, upper class, um, but he returned to Jerusalem to start to rebuild some of the infrastructure there and rebuild the wall in the city. But despite these glimmers of hope, effectively the Old Testament concludes... Um, with this broken nation. Some of them had, had returned back to the land, um, but the land, meanwhile, had been conquered by the Romans, and, the, and, and, and they effectively were in this land that, that God had promised to them, um, but once again, they, they, they weren't receiving the blessing that had been promised to them because they had been unfaithful to God. And for about sort of nearly half a millennium, um, the prophets went silent, and this nation, the Israelites, just had to sit it out and wait They were left waiting to see if God would honor the promises that he'd made to them long ago anyway and send them a savior who would be mighty enough to to restore the perfect creation of Genesis, to send them a savior who would give God's people a second chance like he'd done in the days of Noah, a leader who, who would need to be stronger than Moses because he would need to lead these people out of slavery once and for all and he'd need to be a warrior like David because somebody needed to conquer the devil once and for all. A servant king, perhaps, like the one prophesied in Isaiah, who could bear the punishment that the people deserved, be crushed for our iniquities, and save us all. You know, reflecting back over the course of the whole of the Old Testament, all these people had tried to be those things for the people, but it had been too much of a job for them. It had taken this long to demonstrate that it needed God himself to take on flesh and to come amongst us and be that savior that we needed. The whole way through the Old Testament story, the compass had been pointing towards Jesus. And in, at the start of the New Testament, in, in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we read how Jesus came. And he, he lived amongst us. And on the day of the Passover, the Jewish festival of the Passover, where the people, where God's people sacrificed their lambs, on that Friday, Jesus, the Lamb of the world, was sacrificed for the sins of the world. And on the Sunday, he rose again. And over the course of that weekend, he fulfilled many of God's promises. And he continues to fulfill God's promises today, and he will continue to fulfill God's promises in the future. In one of the New Testament letters to Corinthians, um, in chapter 1, verse 20, it says, For no matter how many promises God has made, 
They are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. And so it turns out that those Old Testament prophecies, even that one in Jeremiah, um, we are part of the fulfillment of those promises. Those promises that we, are promises that we can own and receive for ourselves. And so you don't need to get a tattoo lasered off if you happen to have that on, on your arm. And so after Jesus um, died on the cross and, and raised back to life, he, he, he spent a few days with his followers and then he went back to heaven. But as he did, he commissioned his followers to start the church and spread the gospel. And he promised that the Holy Spirit would come and empower them to do that. And as we read on to the, to the next book in the Bible, a book called um, Acts, we read how that happened. On, on another Jewish festival, um, the festival of, um, of Pentecost, when God's people, they would celebrate the first fruits of the harvest, the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus' followers and they experienced the first fruits of the Spirit. And immediately, um, the church sprang into life. It grew rapidly. And God anointed and he inspired Jesus' followers like, like Luke and Peter and James and, and, and this guy called Paul. He inspired them to write letters to, to instruct the church on how to do the church. And it's through the wisdom of, and guidance of these letters, um, books like um, Romans and Corinthians and uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, uh, Thessalonians, um, letters to Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, letters to Peter, letters to John, Jude, and Revelation. We get the church because we received that instruction and guidance. And this is where we come into um, this Bible story. We are the church through which God is fulfilling his promises today. We are God's ambassadors, commissioned by him to be salt and light, to be his witnesses here and to take the gospel message to the ends of the earth. And so as we get to this point, um, I guess there's a bit of one thing that I want to remind you of is that this evening has been partly about doing something practical. It's been partly about getting the map out and looking at um, the broader co context of the Bible picture so that hopefully as you're reading the Bible, um, there's a bit of a framework to read things within. And I hope practically it's been of some help in that sense. But the other thing that I wanted to try and do tonight, the thing that I wanted to impress on our hearts is the insight that, that today, that now, is our chapter of this Bible story. We are, are standing on, on the shoulders of all of these giants and making history one day, one prayer, one act of compassion, one act of, of generosity at a time, sharing our faith and living it out. Our chapter of this Bible story is being written with our lives. And you know, if we reflect over the whole of this story, I think if there's one thing that we can learn from all of these different characters in the story, it's that they always had a choice. They always had a choice to either turn towards God or to turn away from him. And through the years, through the ups and downs, we've, we've, we've seen tonight how sometimes they, they turned towards him and they tried to embrace his ways and sometimes they ran away from him and rebelled against him. But no matter where they went to and what they did, God's attitude was always the same. He was always pursuing them. He was always protecting them. He was always just desiring that they would come back to him. And he was sent them prophets and priests 
um, to try and help them do that. And ultimately, through Jesus, he did whatever it took to get this message across to his people that no matter where we run to, no matter what we do, it doesn't change the fact that we are his children. And his desire is that we would come and live with him, to be at home with our Father. And that home, heaven, is our destiny. It's what we were made for. The Bible's story doesn't end with us today. It actually ends um, in the future. Um, In the book of um, Revelation, at the very end, um, we read how one day God is going to bring things full circle, and he's going to build a new heaven and, and a new earth where, once again, God's people will dwell with God. He will be our God. We will be his people. Just like Eden, God's people in God's place under God's rule. And that um, is the Bible story of, of, of which we are part. And so, as we go tonight, um, I want to ask you just one question, really. In light of all this, how do you want to, to live your life? Because as we've seen, God has, has given each of us freedom to write our own chapter of the story. So I want to ask you, what do you want your chapter to say?